again to the Perimeter Church podcast. We've all heard some variation of the saying, the writing's on the wall, and it usually means bad news, and worse, bad news that can't be avoided. For Belshazzar, it was all too real a situation that gave us another entrenched image, fear that causes the knees to knock together. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, The Stand, with this message entitled, The Wages of Sin, which covers Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 30. Thank you for joining us today. If you're a part of this church and have been through the process of kind of identifying with this church, uh, you've heard me talk about a man named Frank Barker. Uh, Frank was uh, one of the two most influential men in my life, outside my own father uh, being raised and so forth. But these two spiritual men, and his, this is one of them, uh, Frank Barker. Frank was a, was a Navy pilot, and he tells a story that when he was uh, flying off of aircrafts and, and doing his thing, he, he just had no interest in the things of God, none whatsoever. Uh, he was a party boy. He, would just, he did whatever he wanted to do. He'd been off for a weekend leave of absence or leave, and, uh, and he was coming back to where he was stationed. It was late at night. He'd spent the weekend up late partying and so forth, and as he was driving back in the late hours, he fell asleep at the steering wheel. He went off the road, went down an embankment, and he crashed into a tree, was not hurt, but crashed into the tree. And when he came awake to see what had happened, he said it was so ironic that his headlights were crisscrossed. And where they actually met was focused on a little sign hanging on a tree. You often see this in some of the rural areas, particularly the south, and it'll have some little scripture or something. Well, there were his headlights pointed right at one sign. He wakes up, the first thing he sees is this little quote, the wages of sin is death. (laughs) And he had the thought, maybe this could be a sign for me, you know. (laughs) It was a sign for him because his story goes on to say, Then he looked it up. He said, I got to find out where this is. So he he looks up the verse and it says the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23, but that was only half the verse. And his story is that it goes on the next, the rest of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He came to faith as a result of that. God used other things, but uh, he started saying, help me, I want to understand. And he became a follower of Christ. That little verse, the first part of verse 23 of Romans 3, could not be illustrated any better than in the text that we study today. We're in the book of Daniel, if you're new with us. There's one week left in the series. We're going through chapter 6. Many of you will be familiar with the story of today, which was the mysterious handwriting on the wall. That's chapter 5. Next week, we'll complete the series, and as we complete it, It's going to be the most famous of all texts, and that is Daniel in the lion's den, right? We know the story. So many do. And we'll end the series with that. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, and we'll be in chapter 5. It's a fairly lengthy text. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell part of it and read part of it so that we can mind the truth from this text and be able to make the applications that we need. Here is the story at this point. 
Uh, I'm not going to go back and tell you all the history prior to this, but, but uh, the story begins about a, a king named Belshazzar, and it starts like this, verses 1 and 2. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now, one thing you need to know, just historically an issue here, is that actually it says the sun, and it does not have to be translated that. It's actually a term that's talking about generationally came from, maybe grandfather. Uh, We know that he was really not his father, but probably grandfather. His father... Um, his father was, was at this time the king and his father had gone out to actually be fighting against the Medes and the Persians who would ultimately take them over. And so he had put his son Belshazzar in charge as the acting king. That's why a little bit later you will see as there's this handwriting on the wall And he says, anybody who can interpret this for me, I will give them the third highest position in the land. Because his father was the first, he was actually second, though he was the reigning king, but he was serving as the king while his father was gone. So that helps you understand that just a little bit so it it clarifies. Now, in verses 3 and 4, I won't read them, but but, uh, they start partying. And they're using all of the vessels that were taken by let's say his grandfather, assuming it's his grandfather, that's taken by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple of God when defeating Israel. Now, as that happens, now they're just making, you know, fun and and enjoying all the goods of God's temple. I mean, what a heinous thing to be doing. But they're worshiping as they do so their own gods, the gods of silver, gold, and so forth. If you read further, you'll see that. And so they're just having the time of their life at that point. Then Belshazzar, well, let's let's read verse 5. Maybe this is the best place to jump in. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, I've just read that kind of matter of fact. But let me tell you, if you saw the episode, were we there, you know it wouldn't be... Wow, looky there. Hmm. Wonder what that says. Wonder which God wrote that. I mean, you're seeing a hand appear in writing. Imagine. So the next verses say he is scared to death. You would be, I would be. They believe in gods because they're worshiping gods of silver, gods of gold, but they've never seen anything like this, a handwriting and this mysterious language. They don't even know what it means. They have no idea what could it mean. The next verses tell us in verses 10 through 16 that the queen, his wife, says, hey, I remember the story of this man named Daniel. Now, Daniel is an adult now, probably an old man. Daniel was only a young teenager when this all began. 
in the book, chapter 1. But now he's an older man. We don't know where he is and what he's doing. But she says, hey, there is this one guy who can do it. He'd already summoned all of his conjurers and magicians, wise men as he called them, and none of them could interpret. And he said, look, if anybody can do this correctly, I'm going to give them the third position in the kingdom. And she says, hey, you better try this Daniel. He's the right guy to talk to. So they summon Daniel and tell him, look, third, you know, third spot in the kingdom, if, if, if. He said, look, I don't care about that stuff. I, I, I'm not at least interested in all that, in the least. But I will tell you that you need to remember what happened to your, let's call him grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Because let me tell you, he was so arrogant. He did his own thing. And God took his reasoning ability from him. Remember the withdrawal of common grace as we talked through that? And he literally came into a period of insanity. And God, by his grace, gave him understand to see who the most high God is. And you need to understand this, Belshazzar, because you're following exactly in your grandpa's steps. You need to know this. Well, in verse 22... We come to, uh, well, we'll pick up with the story. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines and so forth, been drinking from them. Don't have to read the rest. It just restates the story that they kept partying. Now, you young people, wherever you're listening to this, whether you're in a different venue or whether you're, uh, whether you're listening to this online or, or what, I, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, you know I've prepared this series for you. And I read this, and I think if you're listening to this for whatever reason, that means that you do embrace to some degree that we serve the true king. He is our God. But I guarantee you, you're young. Let me tell you, the the world of Babylon, a prototype as we've been studying of a world separated from God, the Babylon of this world is screaming loudly. And she's saying, come look at me. Look how gorgeous I am. Look how pretty I am. Look what I've got to offer you. You can't resist me. You know you can't. And so there is going to be a lifetime battle, but one right now that perhaps is raging beyond any time you will ever experience. And the idea is, if I give myself to her, the great harlot Babylon, she will satisfy my heart. This is a story to show you, no, she will not satisfy your heart. And if you allow her to satisfy your heart, this is what's going to happen. And so the story goes on with the inscription in verse 25. And here's the inscription. That's the mystery to all. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uferson. Uferson is the plural of Tekel. So uh, that's why you're not going to see it repeated again. It's the same word, just in the plural. This is the interpretation of the message. And so now he gives the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales 
and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians, which is exactly what happens. We see in the uh, verses 30 and 31, the very end of the story. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now, young people, here's the thing. I want to just draw three insights or truths I think are very important for us to know. The first two, I'm just going to comment on. I want to dig into the last one because I think that's the heart of what this text is really teaching. But the first two, by the way, can I say this to you guys? We've been talking a lot about God, his sovereignty, who he is. The text just draws constant attention to it. We've been talking a lot about who we are, the condition of man's heart. This is going to now focus on what happens as a result of the condition of man's heart. Let me tell you, those three are very critical subject matters to know, think through, and embrace. Unfortunately, the church today, largely speaking, has moved away from those themes because they're not popular themes. The themes are about how to feel better and how to live more effectively and how to and this, that, and the other, and how can we make this a felt need. It's, it's, it's all driven there. But young people, let me tell you, if you begin to see who God is, you can see who you are, and you understand what happens because of who you are. Now, this thing called grace becomes as beautiful as it's designed to be. Grace means very little if unneeded. But when you know the condition of your heart and the God that we have to bow to, grace becomes all important to us. So here are these three very quickly. Number one, sin has a degenerative nature. And young people, degenerative means it's just like you might have a, a bone that's degenerating. It's, it's just becoming soft and so forth, but it's declining, it's breaking down, so forth. Well, that's the nature of sin. The truth of it is, is that it's never stable. Sin in our life never stays where it is. It goes deeper and deeper. And that's why we looked at Romans 1 last week. And talked about how God gives us over. And oh, it just begins with something so simple as lack of gratitude. No big deal. It's just I'm not very thankful. I ought to be more thankful, but you know, too bad. But that turns into he gives us over to, it says, to idolatry. And but we don't think that's a big deal because our idols are good things. It's not that we're making bad people or bad things our idols, it's good things and good people that are our idols. No big deal until you get to the very end. It keeps giving us over, giving us over to passions and then to the depravity of our heart, depraved minds. And then you have this ugly description of what's left at that moment. Well, that is the nature of sin and we have to know that. And by the way, it's true of societies at large, not just individuals. The people make up societies and cultures. It's true of nations. We've watched the decline What's happening morally to this nation? Oh, a little sin, no big deal. But what happens? We hold on to it and it gets worse and worse and worse. It's true of churches. 
It really is. You allow sin to enter and hold on to sin, even if it's the sin of bad theology where you say, I'm not going to believe what God says about God. I'm not going to believe what God says about man. I'm not going to believe about I just whatever it is. And let that just stay a while. Let it simmer and grow. Oh, my goodness. Do you realize today that there are noted denominations and churches throughout this land that if you were to read the worst description of a depraved mind that is written in Scripture and you were to see that, the churches today are ordaining pastors that meet those descriptions. So it, it's like, where did this come from? Well, it didn't happen overnight, and that's the point. You've got to realize, nip it in the bud. Got to get it early. Now, how you do that is not going to be through moralism. It's going to be through the work of Christ, which we'll conclude with. But that's the first teaching. Just know that there is a degenerative nature. We've seen it in Nebuchadnezzar, and now we're seeing it in Belshazzar, and that's enough on that one. Let's look at number two. Sin makes us impervious to danger. You know, after I saw that, I said, I, didn't, I prepared this for kids. That, impervious? 90% of you adults don't even know what that means, do we? No. <laughs> no. Unaware of. I just use the thought of unaware. I should have put that in, but it had already gone to print. Unaware. The danger that exists because of sin. It makes us unaware. So here is Belshazzar, and Belshazzar is partying and partying and partying. We read about this party, but in the scripture, we don't see the whole story. You've got to go to the annals of history. You know what happened? Do you know how Darius defeated him? They were the most fortified city. They were the strongest nation. They had the, the strongest army. I mean, all was good for Babylon. Except now, the leadership are allowing themselves to be so occupied with play, pleasure, enjoyments, that while they're partying, they actually rerouted water and so forth and dammed water where it was and brought the water around where it came up to the city wall and rose very quickly. And there were portals in the top of the walls and literally the Medes and the Persians came through the portals because the water came in and while they were partying, literally annihilated them. A book that some of the older folks here perhaps have read uh, by Neil Postman and uh, it's amusing ourselves to death and basically explaining how just the amusements of today, oh, but they're not a big deal. Just, I just, I'm just being amused all the time. While we're being amused, something is happening. And that is the story. It's, you've got to be so careful because sin will make us so unaware, so unaware of the dangers. And so what's happening to a lot of us young people is that, you know, I'm saying, well, what I'm doing is not that big deal. Everybody's doing it and so forth. And we never, never, never think, how is this going to impact a future healthy marriage? It's not even on our radar screen. Oh, yeah, I know I'm enjoying this and the parties make it fun and so forth and so on. I, I, this is good and I'm enjoying it and it's no big deal. And, but what happens when you have to go into an institution to get rid of the addictions that were brought in just those innocent, enjoyable party experiences? And so it's a reality that, that it, just, it just makes us so unaware of really what is happening. You know, it was Karl Marx who had the famous line that religion is an opiate or drug of the people. No, it's not. It's sin. That's what, that's what drugs us. And that's basically what we see illustrated here. But what I like to do is I like to get to this third point because I think this one is what this text really is all about. It reads like this. Sin will not be 
and I could also say cannot be, overlooked by God. Here is the story of what God is going to do to this man Belshazzar and to his kingdom because of the way he was living, because of the condition of his heart. And we're introducing here a term today called the wrath of God. I mean, it's not a very popular topic today in most churches where you would be in church today. It just people don't talk about the wrath of God. But as I say, you want to understand the wrath of God if it's real. And number two, boy, not to just be afraid of God. No, no, no. It's the wrath of God that enables us to understand and appreciate the grace, the mercy of God. That's the great news called the gospel. So in our particular text, you have here this idea that God's anger has been aroused. Everything's going good for Belshazzar. And then all of a sudden, just like that, it ends. This is the story of Babylon, the harlot in Revelation. Very interesting. The same words are used. Harlot, Babylon the Great. And it looks like everything is so beautiful about this harlot. And Babylon the Great, that's the, that is the, remember the two cities? Babylon versus Zion. Yeah, Zion, well, those are Christians, they're crying, they're not very attractive, they're not very, uh, but oh, Babylon. Well, we begin to see here what happens to Babylon. And the answer is that the wrath of God is poured out. Now, it doesn't seem like when things are, are like they were for Belshazzar, it doesn't seem like the wrath of God is being poured out. You know why? Because the word literally means a pouring out but it carries the idea like water that's boiling. If you've ever boiled water, you know what happens. It simmers. You can see something happening, but it's still contained in the pot. But as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, it spills over. That's the word for wrath. It's the pouring out or the spilling over. It's the word orge in the Greek language. And the, the word is used in the New Testament over and over, the orge of God, the orge of God. But you don't always see it, young people, but it's simmering and it has to spill over. It will spill over. That's the story of scripture. So it is because of Christ, though, that 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 never spills over on us. But the teaching of the whole of God's word is the wrath of God as it spills over does fall somewhere, either on those deserving it. Or those deserving it but claimed by Christ. And know this, as Christians, you never, ever will experience the orgy of God. Never. Don't ever believe the lie that, oh, as a Christian, because I'm doing this, I'm going to experience the orgy of God. I'll experience God's wrath. Let me tell you what I did as a Christian. No. Now, you want to check your heart if things are going like that. Repeat, maybe you're not truly a child of God. You're deceived. But if a child of God, the point is never. You will never experience orge. And that leads many to think of this as young people particularly to say, you know what, I'm a Christian. I'm confident I am. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. I think if we're living a life that's not really seeking at least to be obedient and follow him, we can't know we're really a Christian. We have struggles of doubt and should because we're, we're, there's not the fruit to, to show us the evidence. 
But if you are a Christian, the wrath of God will never, ever touch you. But let me tell you, there is wrath, God's wrath, because of your sin. It's just not going to fall on you. It has to fall. That's, that's who God is. He says the wrath of God must fall on unrighteousness. But what he does, he says, I'll cover you with my righteousness for my son's righteousness. And what I'll do is I'll put that orge, the pouring over, the spilling over wrath, I'll let it pour over on my son, Jesus. He will appease the wrath deserved by you and me. Now, if a real Christian, and when we understand that, we should never have the thought, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm not going to, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm not going to ever experience the wrath of God. No, really? No, 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 no. The wrath of God is experienced. It's been, it's been experienced by Jesus because of what we've done. And that should be the very thing that just grabs our heart and says, no, this is the stuff that causes the wrath that fell on Jesus. No, I don't want to do that. Why would I do it? It breaks the heart of my God who allowed it to go to his son, Jesus. So there becomes our great motivation of motivations. I say, no, I don't want to keep sinning. Don't want to do that at all. Well, we come to Revelation and you have the harlot, as the harlot is called, that which allures and tempts and seduces to keep people from God and his ways. Uh, the other name that's given is, is, is literally Babylon, uh, which, you know, is just a, a word for, for that which displays the things outside of the ways of God. So you come to the very last book of the Bible in Revelation, and you know how it ends? It ends telling about how this wrath is poured out and how some receive it and some don't. Here is the perspective from Revelation. First of all, 17 verses 4 through 6, and it says, the woman, this is the harlot, representing this sinful life, was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now something's about to happen to her, this Babylon, you remember the city? We have a choice of two cities to, to live. We can live in Zion or we can live in Babylon. This is the story of what happens to Babylon. You remember the statue, if you were here for the rest of the series? And the statue and the rock that hits it and pulverizes it? Well, this is what gets hit. Here's the statue. It's about to be hit. And it's a description. So you come to chapter 18 and you get the pagan's perspective when this happens. It goes like this in verse 10. Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. One hour meaning it just happened just like that. Next we read in verse, uh, verse 10, uh, verse 19. And they threw dust on their heads. That's a sign of just, oh, woe is me. Crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, she has been laid waste. No good. When I was in 
college. I just started college, and a, a guy in my, that I met at college says, hey, I, there's this girl that she's still in high school. She's a senior in high school, but a really neat gal, and you really enjoy her and so forth, and I'd like for you all to go out together. And uh, she was homecoming, this, that, and the other. And I thought, oh, wow. So I, I go out with her. Uh, I, my perspective at that time was not all totally right, you know, and who I'm going to go out with and why, but she's attractive. All right, let's do it, you know. And she's supposed to be a Christian. So I said, okay, fine. So I, I see this girl, we go out, and this girl was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, beautiful. And I was, wow, well, after we had, you know, finished the evening, she had mentioned that she was going to be going to my hometown to visit with a relative in a couple of weekends. And, and, uh, and I said, well, I can be home too that weekend. Why don't I, I'll take you to one of my high school basketball games. It was in the fall. And I said, I'll take you to one of my high school basketball games. And I could kind of show the guys that I remember from high school. This is the <laughs> type of people I date on a regular basis, you know. I actually wasn't a big dater. So I thought, oh, this will be kind of fun. And so uh, I got her address, and I was going to pick her up that day. And, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to drive by and make sure I know where. I wasn't familiar with that little area of town. And, and I, I said, I'll just drive by and make sure I have the right address. And I do. And I see this, this um, you know, girl about my age, I, I see this girl out in front. I didn't recognize her, but she was in front of the house. And I just drove by and didn't wave or anything. I didn't know her. And all of a sudden, as she saw me drive by, she does like this. And, and I stopped and I said, who is this? And it was that girl without makeup. <laughs> I'm truly, I, and as I talked to her, I kept saying, I'd only been with her one night and I kept going, is that what you looked like? In, behind what I saw and I'm, I'm just I was confused I, I just like wow now young people young people I want you to have that vividly imprinted in your thinking when you think of and this girl was a fine girl but I'm talking about in scripture the harlot here's the point she looks different than she is And you'll always see it differently once you see the other side. You haven't seen as young people yet the other side of what the harlot looks like. She just looks gorgeous. Like she would give you everything you need to be happy. Not when you really see her for who she is. You remember that picture. And as you see it, her, him, that, whatever it is, just say, "Uh, I'm seeing a lot of makeup right now. That may not be, in fact, that's not who she really is. It closes within the perspective of the Christian. I'm not going to read that for time's sake, but if you would like to, you go to your own book of Revelation, your own scriptures in Revelation 19. Read the first handful of verses, and that's the perspective of the Christian as they begin to see. I'm going to read it. I think we've got time. Let's read it. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders representing the whole church and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. You remember how we said that the 
the statue was shattered by the rock and the rock becomes a mountain, this is the mountain. And Christians from all places of all time are going to say hallelujah. I was in the right city. Young people, get to the right city. Don't go to Babylon. You go to Zion. That's where it pays off. It ends, our text ended with those three words. Do you know what those three words really mean? It's the story of God's wrath. But it's got a a silver lining. Here are the three words. Mene, to number. The word means to number. It carries the concept of a book. This is the book that we read in Revelation that records every activity, every sin, everything we do. And the idea is that that book weighs against us. It is, it is showing us. When we see the book, when we see the number, when we see it, we're going to say, I have no defense. Nobody's going to argue, but I was a good person, but I was religious, but I did this. I, no, no, you're going to go, oh, my God. We're going to say, no, no, no. First of all is mene. The second word, to kill. It means to weigh. It's the idea of scales. We're not talking book now. We're talking about scales. You know the scales? They have two sides like this, and you put weight on one, it raises the other, and vice versa, and so forth. And it says what's going to happen is you're going to see the lies, the deception, the heart, the motivations, all the sins, and it's going to weigh so heavily that no one will stand before God and say, hey, hey, I, I, should, I should be fine. Look, no. It's going to weigh so against us that we have, we have no hope in our own righteousness. The third word is the word parase. Carries the idea of divide. Do you know the word judgment means divided? That's what judgment does. It takes a people and it says there's going to be a division. Some here to the left, some to the right. It's what, as I'll use my last text, Matthew 25, 46 says, it says these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is parase. That's what it is. And the story was to Belshazzar and to all of us to say, look, you can't get away from the book. You can't get away from the scales. You can't get away from the division. It is going to happen. But here's the great news. Young people got to hear this. For those of us that are covered by Christ's righteousness, that have come before the cross and said, I am guilty, I am wrong, I want you, and you know that you're there because there's a love relationship that's birthed. doesn't necessarily say it's strong initially, but it... But it's birth, when that happens, covered with the righteousness of Christ, and this scale that's gone this way is going to flip just like this, and you're going to see weighted on the other side the full righteousness of Christ, and it'll make our sins look as nothing because it's going to be covering them. When that happens, that's going to be Jesus declaring, and he's going to say, paid in full, paid in full. What's weighed on the scale, it's paid for. You don't have to worry about it any further. Done. My righteousness is your righteousness. That is the beauty of the good news. But you run away from the wrath, you won't be drawn to the grace. Got to see what is. To see what's really needed and wanted. For young people, you run to the cross. And say, I don't know how this thing works. I don't know how you get it. I don't know, but I want to see what you've done 
for people like me. And you stare at the cross long enough and something happens. Something happens. And that's why we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table and we're going to get to stare at the cross. I like to read. I won't put it on the board, but I like to read for you a statement by a man, C.H. McIntosh, one of the greats from the 1860s. This is what he says about this thing that we're about to do. It is impossible that anyone can gaze on the cross, can see the place which Christ took, can meditate upon the sufferings which he has endured, can ponder on these three terrible hours of darkness, and at the same time think lightly of sin. Do you know this is what we're going to do? We're going to stare at what he's done. This is his story put in a picture form. And we're going to be able to see this tells the story right here. We're looking at the cross, the evidence of what he's done. And then it says, when all these things are entered into the power of the Holy Spirit, there are two results which must follow. One, namely an abhorrence of sin in all of its forms. And number two, a genuine love to Christ, his people and his cause. And that's what this is. It's a time to come and to be able to stare at the cross. World War II, it was right at the beginning. There was a, there was a lull called the phony war, a lull in the storm. It seemed as if maybe things were okay. The allied troops kind of dropped their, you know, their defenses and so forth and could have easily been annihilated. And they call that the phony war. Let me tell you, there is a phony war, young people, that's going on right now. And the phony war is, hey, I get to enjoy these sins and they don't do any damage. No big deal. I'm okay. Little sin, no big deal. It's a phony war. It's going to lead to the onslaught. And when the onslaught takes place, that's when we lose our marriages. That's when we lose relationships that are so important to us. That's when we lose our health. That's when we lose this. Let me tell you, you don't want that. But why you don't want it is you want to be the winner, the victor. You win. You're just, you're just playing up to the harlot. And she's going to be destroyed. And you're going to one day look and say, oh, my goodness, she's gone. What do I have left? Nothing. Unless you've come over here. You go to Zion. Live in Zion. Follow his ways. And watch what God does. You can't do it through moralism. You do it through the work on the power of Christ. That comes from him indwelling us. That's why he went to the cross to die for our sins. And so let's stare at the table. Christian, let's be fed by his grace. This is a means of grace. And let's watch what it does in enabling us to abhor sin and to embrace Christ. As we pray together, preparing the table, we prepare our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come now to you and thank you for this table. We know this is, the, this is the only way that that wrath that is yours and rightly yours will ever fall away from us. And those of us that have experienced the grace that has saved us from that wrath forever and ever, we want to come now and feed. And we want to be reminded of, of why we should abhor sin.
and why we should love you so much. I pray this would be a time of repentance for all and particularly from some that have, that have kind of been dazzled by the harlot and seen her beauty and thought that's what she really is. I pray you would hear us as we confess and rid ourselves of, of our devotion to her and turn to you. May we see the rock, our Christ, and may we see the kingdom coming and look forward in hope to what you're going to do. So use this time, prepare our hearts now, forgive us of anything that hinders us from coming to the cross well now, seeing you, what you've done through this picture of the table. But we thank you and we pray in the great name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. We're going to invite you to the table and when you do, we'll actually hand these to you and you're going to find a, a cup that is actually a stacked cup. The bottom cup is your bread representing the body of Christ, the drink representing the blood of Christ. Uh, these are symbols that are used to remind us of truth. And communion is only as impactful, not based on how emotionally you get geared into this thing, but how truthfully you lock in to the truths they represent. So that's why you want to use this to find truth and think about the truth. So as I always say, you know, remember the cross. Then relive the anguish. Some will find themselves emotional, some won't. That's not the big deal. But let's remember, there is a personal application. What we remember the cross was because of what we've done. So we take that into mind. And then we renew our covenant. If it's real, we can say, God, I submit and surrender. I'll still struggle. This is not, by the way, this is not for people who have it together. These are for people who don't have it together but want to get it together and believe that he's the only way to get there. That's who comes to take the table. Who's invited? We believe, biblically speaking, through the history of the church, it's the church, those that are truly under the authority of a church, a true biblical church, are invited to his table. This is one of the great benefits of being in covenant with his church, which is really in covenant with God. But we're not to evaluate our own hearts. That's the, that's the job of the authority of the church. And so... If you're a member of any church, not just this one, but a true member in good standing, man, we say, come, take the table. This is for you and enjoy the table. Use the time of quiet reflection just to be with the Lord. Think about that. Take the bread. I encourage you to take it early. I take it immediately. It's just to, to utilize the taste and the, the reality to remind me of the truth of his, of his life, his perfect life for me. And then let's hold the cup. Let's take it together as I close out in just a few minutes. We'll do that together. But just remember those little three things. Remember, remember what happened. Remember the past. Remember the cross. Number two, relive the anguish. Number three, recommit your vows. If that takes place in light of this great truth, I think you're in for some, a great time with God. So let's now take the, the bread. The Lord said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and enjoy. The Lord said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take and then let's pray once again. Our Father, as we take this cup, every one of us, I would pray, would he now, able by your grace to say in our hearts, we recommit our vow to you. We started that vow the day we met you and came to know you. And we renew that vow even now, saying it is our pledge of intention to follow you faithfully to rely on you for the strength to do it, not on our moral willpower, but upon what you have given us in our Savior Jesus. Protect us this week. 
Keep us from the harlot. Don't let us by the line, particularly our young folks, I pray, God. Protect them this week as otherwise, had they not been here, heard this, would found themselves going further into the ways of a harlot that hates them. So, God, we're grateful that we have you who loves us. Blessed we pray. We're thankful. And we ask in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.